Welcome to the Village Church Podcast. Thanks for stopping by and taking the time to listen. We've prayed that this podcast channel blesses and encourages the Village family. So lean in with an open heart, eager to grow, and enjoy the episode. Well, it's a real privilege, uh, and I, I, it's, it's been encouraging to see actually a number of people made the trek from Ocean Downs this morning uh, across the river, uh, so uh, I feel like I'm uh, amongst family um, even more so, because I don't get to spend as much time here as I do get to spend at Ocean Downs, so it's lovely to be here. Um, and we are in the book of James. Okay, if you've been part of the Village Church for a little while, you might notice a bit of a trend. We often do a book in the Old Testament and then a, and a series with a theme and then into the New Testament. And, and I don't know when the last time we, book, we as a church, preached and looked at systematically the book of James. Um, but it's a good book for us to look at. And uh, this morning I get the privilege of opening it up. And I'm, we're going to read the first 18 verses. Um, but we're not going to get to unpack all 18 verses this morning. And uh, if I'd been maybe a bit more organized, there'd be a there'd be a slide up behind me. So you can kind of picture a lovely mountain scene. And a title across there would say, Wisdom Under Pressure. And the subtitle would be, A Path of Perseverance. That's what I think, the first 18 verses of James that God is laying out for us. Um, for us to, uh, to us to get into our bones and under our feet for what else he's saying through the book of James. So let's, let's read. I'm going to read from the NIV, the first 18 verses of James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position, because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away, even while he goes about his business. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift from above coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Thank you, Lord, for your word. The book of James. James introduced himself just simply as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it would have been really helpful if he would have given us a little bit more of a biography so we could tell which James this is. Because there's, there's four Jameses. Now, a, a little bit of a, a context 
that for us in the book of James. And I want this just to be a history lesson, but it is helpful and I'd say necessary for us to understand as we start to unpack the scripture. There's, there's four Jameses mentioned in the Gospels, um, and two are, were quickly ruled out by, um, by all theologians um, and critics of the Scripture. Um, one is named as the father of Judas, not Iscariot, but the other Judas, in Luke 16. And James, often referred to as James the Younger, son of Alphaeus and of Mary. Again, you can read about them. They only make a couple of mentions in Mark chapter 3 and again in chapter 15. And neither of these two... Um, individuals mentioned in the Gospels carried enough weight it's thought to pen this letter. But then you have James, one of the three, you know, mentioning the threesome of Peter, James, and John. One of one half of the of the dyna, I'd say the, the dynamite duo, you know, the sons of thunder, um, sons of Zebedee, original fishermen. And he was there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. But, and we know that he was killed for his faith by Herod in, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 12, in 44-45 AD. Not long, a decade after Jesus ascended. And then you have James, the brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph. Most scholars would suggest that this is the James that wrote this letter. He was a prominent figure in the church in Jerusalem. He was referred to alongside Peter as one of the pillars of the church by Paul. We know that he, again, was martyred for his faith in around 61-62 AD by Ananias. And the vocabulary and style of the letter lets us know that it was written before books like Galatians and Romans by Paul. We know the dates of those are in 55 to 57 AD. So this is a very, very early letter. Now, which of the two James wrote, I don't believe is critical. Because God has seen fit, despite much, you'd say, criticism, even by men like Luther, that God has preserved this letter in the canon of Scripture for our benefit. But what is critical, I believe, is that we understand when it was written and the context in which James was writing it. Because for us, like all believers through history, but I think particularly for us in this season and the, and the, and the water we swim in, we can often look at a book of, the book of James, or any letter in the New Testament especially, and think, God's writing this just for me. This is a letter just for me, and I'm going to pull out this nugget of wisdom and apply it directly for my life. Well, God had us in mind, absolutely, when he had James pen this letter, but not us exclusively. Remember, the Bible was written for us, but not to us. And there's, a, and there's if you will, a caution sign for us to just immediately appropriate everything in the book of James as wisdom for us, for our specific moment. That's a particular risk for us. So we should pause and think, who is God originally, who is God originally speaking to when he was writing this? Because I don't believe that the book of James is just a book of wisdom. I don't know if you ever thought, you've gone to the book of James, you go, well, it's, it seems patchy. He, he, he talks about this, and then he jumps to something else, and I can't really see a thread running through it. And you could, and you could 
relegate it to just wisdom literature like what Solomon wrote. And because we read Solomon, Solomon speaks about wisdom and he gives specific examples, but he jumps around on subjects matter. I don't believe James is doing that because again, we have to remember the context in which he's writing. And he gives us the hint, God gives us the hint, I think in the first verse and the last verse of the book of James, that kind of this thread that you can follow all the way through that holds that everything else that he speaks about hangs off of. So verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Kind of an odd address, 12 tribes. There is no longer 12 tribes. After the, after the um, exile, only 10 returned. And this is post-Christ. So why is he writing to the 12 tribes? The original believers, this early in the church, one decade, maybe at most two decades after Christ's ascension, almost every single one of the believers were Jewish. That had had the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah. So he's addressing Jewish believers in that first or second decade after Jesus ascended. And specifically those that are scattered. And then the last verse, turn over a page, the last verse in chapter 5, verse 19 says, My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I think this thread that weaves it all the way through is James is writing to first century believers that have wandered away from the truth, that have been scattered due to persecution, and the temptation that have presented themselves in the midst of trials, they've succumbed to. They've wandered away from the path of righteousness. They've wandered away from the way Jesus told them to live and directs us to live, and I say empowers us to live. And James is writing this letter in order to bring them back. In order to say, come back, repent, and walk again on this path following Jesus. He's writing to persecuted believers scattered around the Mediterranean in order that they might come back to this path of following Christ. Acts chapter 8. We'd probably be familiar with it if you've read your Bible for a little while. But Acts chapter 8... It says that a great persecution broke out. What was the what was the thing that, that sparked that persecution? Stephen preaching the gospel and being stoned to death for declaring that Jesus was the Messiah. And it said that the believers were scattered all the way through Judea and Samaria. They fled Jerusalem because someone was on their heels. Saul and others dragging them off putting them in prison, torturing them because they dared confess that Jesus Christ as Lord and Messiah that God had promised. These are a hounded people. In Acts chapter 11, it says that they went as far as Antioch and Cyprus. Like, they went a long way. They went to an island to try to get away from Paul. Like, they are hounded. And James is right into this context of this fledgling church that had been chased out of Jerusalem, driven from homes, hounded from village to village, exiled, disowned, shunned, excluded from the temple. People that had gone to the temple regularly, anticipating, having their scrolls read and going, one day the Messiah is going to come. And now he has, and they've got revelation of it, and now they're excluded from the temple. They have no place to worship. 
They've been ghosted from the feast invitation list. Their property confiscated and even being exploited by their employers. All for confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Savior and King had come. Their world's turned upside down. And and this is like say, only Yes, good morning. Their world's turned upside down. And they don't see the evidence of Christ's kingship at the pace and to the extent that they had desired and anticipated. Ever feel like that sometimes? Like, Lord, where are you in the midst of this? They were frustrated. They were vexed, like just at their wits' end. And they were reacting to the tribulations in unchristlike ways. Now, they know, we know, and they probably had the book of Matthew. They know what Jesus had promised. He says, I tell you the truth, Matthew 24, 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Read the first part of, we read chapter 23 and 24 of Matthew. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. God's righteous judgment on the apostate Israel was going to come. And we know, for the benefit of hindsight, it did come in 70 AD. The temple was torn down and has never been rebuilt. One stone, as Jesus promised, from another will be cast down and never put back on one top of another. And here are these believers in the midst of trial and saying, God, we, we know you promised, and but we're in the midst of this and we don't see the evidence of your kingdom yet. And they start to react in unchristlike ways. That's who James is writing to. And you might find yourself going, I can, I can understand where they're at. They start to desire sinful exploits instead of saintly exploits. 1 verse 14. There's an evil and a, and, a, and a filthiness to their lives that's becoming prevalent in 1 verse 21. They're becoming judges with evil thoughts towards others. And I would suggest probably easy on themselves. 2 verse 4. They're lacking any sign of mercy. 2 verse 13, they're lazy in their obedience. There's no action to follow up that accompanies their faith. Selfish ambition has taken residence in their hearts. 3 verse 14, they're even fighting and quarreling among themselves, taking each other out with friendly fire. 4 verse 1, and even starting to boast and brag in their own plans rather than seeking God's direction. 4 verse 16. In all of this, James doesn't say, don't worry about changing the world. Just concern yourself with spiritual matters. The stuff that's going on, the apostasy, the the persecution you're facing, don't worry, just focus on spiritual matters. Hold on, Jesus is coming back soon. James doesn't say that. He reminds us, he reminds the saints and he reminds us that the kingdom of God is coming. That the kingdom of God is different. And that we are called to fight and fight differently than the world does. 
Here, these, 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 these first century Christians are starting to think, well, hold on, all these guys have power. All these guys have money. All these guys have influence. Why don't we just do what they're going to do, and then we'll see the kingdom advance that way. But they forgot what Jesus said. What good is it to gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? To fight like the enemy fights is to have lost. To fight how the enemy fights is to have lost. James reminds us, God reminds us, that we're called to fight, remembering that the kingdom is of a different place. John 18, 36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent, to present, to, sorry. I'm going to get some new glasses. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. How are we to live? Remembering that Jesus' kingdom is from another place and has come on earth and is coming on earth. Now, Jesus is ruling and reigning now. Yeah, it's okay to say amen to that. Like the, we just celebrated Pentecost Sunday not that long ago and Ascension Sunday just before it. He has ascended, not only to heaven, but to the right hand of the Father. He has come to the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7 promised that, the ancient, that he would go and be presented to the Ancient of Days. He has been. His kingdom has come on earth and is coming. How did Jesus direct us to pray? Your kingdom come. Where? Here on earth as it is in heaven. And when we face trials, that is part. We shouldn't be surprised or shocked or dismayed or think his kingdom is not coming. Dare I say, it is part of the means in which his kingdom does come. So, a theology of trials. Who's he writing to? A people that are in desperate, desperate place. Now, we can say, quite thankfully, right now, we don't experience the kind of persecution that they did. I have never been ousted from my home for putting up a Christmas display that declares Jesus is Lord. I have not yet lost a job. Hopefully I'll never lose one in this job. <laughs> for declaring that Jesus is Lord. We don't experience the persecution that the early church did. But can I say, and time will tell, but I believe in our generation, we will start to see in the West, in the developed world, this level of persecution. I believe that's my observation, not revelation. I'm not saying, thus saith the Lord. But I do believe that we will get to. And why do I say get to? Because some of us, I don't know, are you surprised to hear when you, when you read something of the developing world and where the church, where the kingdom is coming in greater and greater measure, where people are getting saved and you're seeing the power of God at work, where do we hear that occurring? The places where it is the hardest to confess Christ. I had the privilege um, earlier this year, well, in, in, um, in April, and going back again in September. Please talk to me if you'd like to come with. I'm partnering with a couple other churches. But sitting with some pastors in North Sumatra in Indonesia and chatting to a gentleman whose, whose parents, he was raised Muslim, came to faith. 
His parents have subsequently come to faith. And he has a, a deep passion to see those that are trapped in Islam come to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And he shared just in the, four, in, the, in the five months of the first part of the year, four believers come out of Islam, confess Christ, surrender their lives to him, lost their jobs, lost their families, lost their reputation, lost even a place to live for confessing Christ as Lord. Now, when we read the scriptures, we shouldn't be surprised that that is the place where the gospel is bearing fruit. Because it's in our trials that we that God tests and indeed refines faith. So can I say, we'll get to enjoy some level of persecution. Yeah, it doesn't sound fun. And I don't think any of us should aspire towards it. But it, it shouldn't surprise us and shock us. Because my experience has been, and I can say I've had a few challenges and trials. Sometimes the shock and the unexpectedness of the trial is the thing that undoes me for a while as opposed to the size of the trial. I'm just so shocked. How could this be? God, I'm, I'm doing all the right things, God. I'm praying, I'm reading my Bible. How could this be? Well, we, we should read Job. That's some good wisdom literature. He was a man, I think, who probably lived on the corner of a roof or had a dripping tap in his house because his wife wasn't all that helpful. And when calamity came and he had it just roll over him like a wave, his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And he says, are we to receive only good from God? Turn with me, Job chapter 2. Job chapter 2 verse 9 says, His wife said to him, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Verse 10, he replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. So we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When we face trials of many kind, oftentimes our first question is why? We shouldn't be surprised by trials. James, God encourages us through James here to say, actually, consider it all joy when, not if. There are lots of ifs in the scriptures, but it's not here when, it consider, when we consider trials, it's when. There's echoes all the way through James's letter that echo Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11 and 12 says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When? When we experience trials. Like I say, I'm quite thankful currently we don't experience the level of trials of the first the first century church did or that many believers are experiencing around the world. And we should give thanks for that. But there is... There was a particular risk for the early church of frustration and temptation to come in because of the lack or the, the extent of the kingdom of God hadn't yet spread that far. I would say that our risk is 
because the kingdom of God has actually borne as much fruit as it has in the last 2,000 years, we're at particular risk. Comfort and convenience is our norm compared to the vast majority of the population on the planet currently and over the last 2,000 years. We have a level of comfort that, that has not existed um, and still doesn't exist in many places in the world. And can I say, our, our freedom, our prosperity, our human rights, our rule of law, even our democratic government, whether you like them or not, we can take all those things for granted, but all of them are directly downstream of Christian faithfulness and the extent of the spread of the gospel and the lordship of Christ over the last 2,000 years. His kingdom has come to a measure and will continue, but there is a particular risk for us that we get, we get, we get taken out by a trial because comfort and convenience is our norm and oftentimes our highest goal. Can I encourage us? Comfort in this life is not God's highest goal for us. If I had more time, uh, we're not going to get anywhere close to the end of my notes, so I might as well just abandon them now. We're, we're, love how God works. Seven years ago, next week, God brought us here from Queensland to, to, to Hamilton in the depth of winter. Anyone ever been on a tropical holiday in winter? Like go to the tropics in the winter, then you come home and that's a bit of a shock to the system. We moved from the tropics in the middle of winter. And he reminded me of a few things. We had, a, we had, we had the ugliest cut. When we moved here, we moved with check bags and um, I didn't have a job. When I did get a job, it was a 40% pay cut from the job I left in Cairns. And the cost of living is 20% higher here in New Zealand than it was in Queensland. So just do the math. And then we, we found a couch on Trade Me. We were new to Trade Me. We found a couch, and it was the ugliest red velvet couch. I like it. Yes, Terry liked it, so that's how we got it. It was red. She likes red. And But it was the lowest couch in the world. Like, when you got down onto it, it was, like, so uncomfortable. It wasn't that comfortable to sit on, and it was incredibly difficult to get up. <laughs> incredibly difficult. And, and now this sounds like, this is, like, this is, like, not very inconvenient, I know. And then, and in the, our house in the tropics, we lived outside because it was the tropics. You could, and we had a roofed patio on the back of the house so we could entertain 50 people on undercover. And I, and I remember we were only in our house, rented house here in Hamilton for a few months, and we had somebody over and had a barbecue holding an umbrella <laughs> because there was no cover over this tiny little square of concrete I had, and in that. God reminded me that my comfort was not his primary concern. Now, those are pretty minor inconveniences, but I needed to go through some, and there was, there's been others. But my comfort, my financial security is not God's primary concern. His forming of Christ in me for his glory and for the spread of his glory across his creation that's his primary concern. And the way in which he does that is through trial. The way in which he does that is through test. The way in which he does that is through hardship. And we ought not to be surprised or shocked and cry out why. Because it should be we, because we're followers of Christ. And that's what Jesus did. That's the way Jesus walked. 
Hebrews 12 verse 11 says well let me go back let's go back to James and try to get through at least one section of the notes it says perseverance let me read from verse 2 again consider it pure joy my brothers whenever you face trials of many kinds there's lots of different trials because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The comfort, the, the, the joy is not in the trial. We're, 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 not, we're not masochists. We're not like, oh, I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to enjoy this difficulty. The joy is seeing the result on the other end of the trial. How did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy set before him. The result of the trial and the going through it is the thing that Christ is producing in us. No discipline. Hebrews 12 verse 11. It's the product, it's the product of maturity, of completeness that is the source of joy. Hebrews 12 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. I like the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases that. He says, at the time, discipline isn't much fun. It's not. It always feels like it's going against the grain. Sometimes it feels like it's going on forever. Later, of course, it pays off big time. For it's the well-trained who find themselves mature in their relationship with God. I love talking to people that have been walking with Jesus for 30 and 40 and even 50 years. Because when they talk about their glory days, they're not, rarely if ever, do they recount the high points. It's the sustaining of God in the midst of trial that are the things that stick and remember. And yeah, so my encouragement, find somebody that's been faithfully following Jesus through thick and thin, highs and lows, and be encouraged. Because the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The, 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 the substance, the assurance of our faith is in the testing. I don't know if you've ever wrestled with the genuineness or the strength of the assurance of your faith as purely an intellectual exercise. I have, and frankly, I've come up wanting with little consolation. But when my faith and my trust has been tested and I've persevered, through the empowering help of the Spirit, I've come out the other side, and I know that I know. You know that you know. I used to work on a boat. And we used to go into dry dock and do repairs and everything else, and you'd have to have someone come and just do an inspection of it, a marine engineer, to see how it all looked when you were done. But before we could take passengers on, it had to go through sea trials. Didn't matter how good it looked, how much it had been examined, but until it was tested, only when it was tested, then it was proven worthy 
to carry others? How does it actually perform in the ocean? So when, how we consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Some of us are facing serious medical diagnosis. Some of us, the sudden loss of a loved one, a devastating financial setback, maybe the unjust dismissal from a job, unfair treatment by a family member and a breakdown in relationship. Through trial and testing, strength and maturity of faith is produced and revealed. The crucible for silver, the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. I'd love to get to a place that C.T. Studd got to. He was a 18th century, 19th century missionary, opened up the nation of China, went through incredible hardship, but he says this, he says, we got into so many tight corners, but always found God there. That we began to look for, even desire tight corners to get into. I'm not there yet. That we might see how God would extricate us from them. My encouragement, God's encouragement to us, and someone else will have to do James chapter 1, part 3 and 4, because I'm not going to do my Our tendency, my tendency is to cry out, why? The scripture here encourages us to cry out, how? To God. If we need wisdom in the midst of our trial, call out to God. That trial, God God is there with us. He went through it. It's how he was proven and made mature, if we read Hebrews 5. But don't cry out why. Don't be surprised. Don't be taken out by the shock of it. God is in the midst of it. And our faith and the maturity it produces is indeed reason for great joy. It's how James can echo Jesus in verse 12 and give us, if you will, another beatitude. He says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Jesus went through trial. How it said it was proved his maturity and he verse Hebrews 5 verse 9 verse 5 chapter 5 verse 9 5 through 9 says although he Jesus was a son he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him Jesus is the embodiment of the true and authentic humanity He's the new Adam, perfectly obedient and surrendered to the Father who endured great trial on our behalf and as an example. He walked this path of righteousness into maturity and his cry is to follow him. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we trust you to be a work by your spirit. Lord, you know the trials that each one of us face. Lord, I bless you, Lord, for those that are maybe walking trial-free at the moment. But, Lord, for each one that is walking through a trial, Lord, pray, Lord, that they would know your nearness, your closeness. Lord, that they would indeed cry out to you, Lord, for the how. 
And Lord, we trust from Your Word, Lord, that You said those who, who lack wisdom, who need it in the midst of trial, Lord, You will give abundantly, unreservedly. Lord, won't You indeed do that now? Continue to be at work in us and through us to produce Your maturity for Your glory, for Your namesake, and indeed our eternal good. We bless You, Lord. Amen.